0: All right, so let's get started. So we're continuing today uh, in our 15 Emphasis for Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. And we skipped from uh, Emphasis 5 to Emphasis 11 because of a season we felt like the Lord took us into, I guess around September or so, of uh, prayer, fasting, worship, seeking the Lord's presence. You know, we uh, have a prayer meeting now at 8.30 that's uh, finally starting to grow, and uh, Emily and Adam Furlow and Leah Gray are taking turns leading the worship in that and doing a great job with it. And um, what uh, we, you know, one of the things that was brought out today is uh, we've always said um, uh, we want lead worshipers, not just worship leaders, what do I mean by that? Uh, I, I forget who told me that the first time I heard that phrase, but it just is so important. Um, you know, as part of the reason we use uh, John Luke and Sam on Wednesday nights and Adam and Emily and Leah on, on Sunday mornings uh, is because God wants more than Deanna, Christiana, and Samuel Chen Sing Poon to be our worship leaders. Uh, We need about a dozen good worship leaders in the church. That's even part of getting ready to plan other churches and having good discipleship groups. Uh, Discipleship groups should be characterized by fantastic, intense worship. And um, the most important thing in leading worship is that you're a lead worshiper in the sense that you really love to get alone and worship the Lord. I remember... uh, uh, praying for a young man to get baptized in the Spirit some many years ago. Not, not that many, but some. And, uh, my son, John happened to be one of those who prophesied in that particular gathering. And he prophesied to the young man that God wants you to learn to lead worship for an audience of one. And, uh, you'll never be a great worship leader if you're not, uh, a great worshiper first and foremost. And, uh, Worship is about intimacy. Uh, Worship is, uh, I hope we're a mature enough audience to hear this, it's much like the physical relationship in marriage. It's a time of communion. It's a time of union. It's a time of closeness. It's a time of proximity. And uh, worship is one of uh, the... five types of prayer in, in, in the series I do on prayer which will is in this emphasis 11 when we get there but reading scripture should be prayer because prayer is two way communication we've all been in meetings where brother Greg just talks and talks and talks instead of draws you out and listens or someone else other people do that too and um, that's that's not fellowship If you're not hearing the the thoughts in the mind and the heart of of the other person. And uh, so when you read scripture, Jesus said the mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. And so God's word is how you find his heart. You're not just reading the word to get good academic theology, of which that's important. Like the green tie, Christmasing. So... Uh, you're, you're, uh, you're reading the word to commune with God. Likewise, worship is a type of prayer, praise and worship. And some, some people make a slight differentiation between praise and worship. I would, I would say for those who do, the thought is that praise involves thanksgiving and the recounting of God's marvelous deeds. If you notice, if you read all the Psalms, notice how often... Uh, they emphasize recounting the miracles of God. And even the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper, and he called us to, to uh, you know, there's a reason why the Corinthian church was instructed to pay their tithes on on the Lord's day in, in 1 Corinthians 16, because uh, that's part of our worship. It's part of belonging to a family. You can't really belong if you don't uh, contribute in that way. And so, um, so praise is, re, is not only Thanksgiving-oriented, but it's Thanksgiving for the great, redemptive, miraculous acts of God. Do you need to tell me something? What's that? Are you guys trying to tell me something? I keep seeing you whisper it. In the, okay. So, um, but that should, that should help us in our journey. to w- Worship is when you're actually in the presence of God, and you're awed or you're marveling at who he is. That's why worship has words like worthy and holy and amazing and so forth. You're awesome. So, a uh, third type of prayer is, is a prayer with petitions. And, and that should always be accompanied with thanksgiving And then the fourth type of prayer is intercession, and uh, we'll study that later, but intercession identifies with the person you're interceding for. That's why all the great intercessors of the Bible, like Nehemiah, are some of the most godly, righteous people in the Bible, and yet they start with, we have sinned. I always thought that was interesting. Uh, Of course, intercession reminds God of his redemptive plans based on his declared, written, scriptural covenant promises. And then lastly, uh, a type of uh, prayer that maybe we engage in too little is spiritual warfare. The person sitting next to you has enemies that are unseen and more numerous than you probably can imagine. Is um, you if you study the difference between Satan and archangel, the the angels that fell with Satan and the demons, they're all different kinds of creatures. Um, although Satan is very similar to all the other angels in most respects, uh, just greater in anointing and, and knowledge, or in IQ, you might say, intellectual possibilities. Of course, sin has corrupted every avenue of his thinking. But demons are numerous as fly. That's that's actually why one of the, the names for Satan uh, is Beelzebub or Beelzebul, uh, which is, my mother wouldn't let me read the book Lord of the Flies when I was in high school. <laughs> was, and William Golding, who wrote it, actually is a Christian. It has a very Christian message, actually. Uh, the the, you know, the boys that get shipwrecked quickly become total barbarians when they don't have the restraints of, of the school and its rules and all this kind of things. And, and they, what's really in their uh, human sinful nature uh, starts to manifest itself quite quickly and thoroughly to the point where I think two of the boys get murdered, if I remember right. I read that book again about three years ago, but... Um, it's, it's actually a great book, and but it is, I actually kind of agree that it's a little intense for high school age, maybe. I don't know. Depends on the maturity level I guess of the student. But in any case, the Lord of the Flies is, Beelzebub refers to Lord of the Flies. It's a metaphor, a word picture. You know, so the God through the Holy Spirit when writing the Bible is so into word pictures that you know, there's at least seventy or so word pictures of Christ. We have a teaching on ten of the word pictures of the Holy Spirit that I hope you've listened to and given some thought. But um, there's even word pictures for the enemy, and uh, one of them is Lord of the Flies, <laughs> because there's a lot of demons, but they're neither as strong as angels nor as uh, nor do they have as high of IQ. In fact, most demons have a lower IQ than most human beings. Um, Now, I get that from the statements demons make throughout the scripture and from a lot of experience with casting out demons. But we're not going to go any further into that. But spiritual warfare is a very important part of prayer. Sometimes your brother or sister just needs someone to knock all the warfare off of them for a while. And sometimes they're not in a place where they know how to or carry enough anointing or whatever to do that themselves. And so uh, try, when you're thinking about, when you're praying for someone who, who you know is going through some difficulties, especially if they seem like it's kind of an overwhelming, a kind of an op- oppression where they're maybe going through difficulty of of um, uh, mood swings or depression or uh, destructive thoughts or uh, really obsessed with a particular temptation that they can't seem to break or whatever, try doing spiritual warfare on a regular basis for them and try, try enlisting. Uh, spiritual warfare is best done as a team. Try and list two or three friends to do it with you. Hey, Nathan, there's something on the floor there, like a red glove or something weird. Oh, it's the decoration fell off. Uh Oh, so, all right, so let's get back into, we've been going through the Lord's Prayer and we've been averaging uh, one message per phrase. So we did one week on the word R, -R, O-U-R, then we did one week on the word Father. Uh, Then we did, last week we did, uh, uh, that was December 6th, 2020, the year of the covid uh, last week we did, um, uh, who art in heaven or who is in heaven in modern translations. And we talked about transcendence and immanence and so forth. Um, your, your, uh, outline has a little teeny line with at the end of it in red print, um, where we ended the last two times I spoke on this. So today we're going to try to do at least holy is your name. We're going to try to get, I don't think we'll get into your kingdom come. I have about thirty minutes left, and uh, so let's uh, let's try to get into this. Holy is your name. Now, in the King James, um, it it says, "Our Father who art who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name." And uh, my my mother came from Bel Air, Ohio, which is a little city directly across the river from uh, Wheeling, West Virginia. And so my dear Aunt Jody and uh, s- several, several people I knew, they, uh, they put an R in their pronunciations of Ws, like Elmer Fudd. Shh, be very, very quiet. We're hunting wabbits. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so they say Washington. You know, I'm going to drive to Washington. And there are several parts of the country that do this, but... Um, so uh, The parts of the country who don't do that often don't have grace for people who do. It, it, sometimes it irritates them or whatever. I'm washing the clothes. and uh, So sometimes they pray, um, <clears throat> you know, our Father who art in heaven, herald be thy name. And uh, <laughs> so I, I remember having to teach a, a group of kids once that God's name is not herald. <laughs> <laughs> it, at first it was a little confusing to me like why are you addressing your prayers dear Harold but uh, <laughs> um, but then this you know the song Hark the Herald made, made more sense to me then but uh, <laughs> no all right so Harold, be thy name is what we're going to talk about today. Uh, so holiness. Holiness, I think, is, uh, is interesting. It's a four-letter word. So if you're trying to give up using four-letter words, be, don't give up that one. Uh, <laughs> but uh, holy is a difficult uh, thing for us to understand because um, of a very easy-to-grasp to fact we don't have any. We cannot, even if we were not fallen, if we didn't have sin, we would not be in and of ourselves holy. Because holiness comes from God, through God, and must return back to God, through whoever is affected or whatever is affected by his holiness. But holiness is a characteristic that in all the universe, God is the only being who has any. And he's completely holy, which is why um, in Revelation 4, 8, and in Isaiah 6, 1 through 3, they cry out threefold, holy, holy, holy. And uh, we all know there's a great doxology Holy, holy, holy. And uh, whenever something is repeated three times, three is the number of the Trinity, and it's, it's basically saying, um, it's intensifying and, and magnifying the concept, but to a point of it's total or, or complete. Uh, God's holiness is the most noticeable characteristic of God when you come into his presence. And so let's actually look on the the page. I have the, the scripture from Isaiah 6, 1 through 3. So let's read that together and talk about it. So in the year of King Uzziah, I love one aspect of the prophets that it often tells you when this happened. Because as I was, uh, I I was having a Bible study with a couple Indian men this week on, uh, whatever you call it, Google Hangouts, and, um, help me, I'm losing my train of thought. Um, Oh yeah, the time. So, you know, when you, if you study from a secular institution, world religions, you'll you know, usually have a list of around seven or eight of the great world religions. Um, If the author of the book has any perspective in history, um, it'll start with Zoroastrianism. Now, Zoroastrianism is fading and dying in the earth so fast that most people think there are well less than one million Zoroastrians left in the world. But it was the predominant faith of areas stretching as far as Northeast Africa and Egypt and all the way through what is today China, Indonesia, and Malaysia, but very much centered in what we would call the Middle East. Uh, Z- there's an aspect of Zoroastrianism in the Star Wars movie. I think uh, uh, I, I did like the Star Wars movies up until the fourth one, which was, is the first one in the series because they introduced the characters, Zar Binks. I've been seeing a therapist ever since uh, to try to recover. Because, you know, up until then, it was a pretty good series. I haven't watched any Star Wars since then, although I I did um, go with some Christians to watch one of the Star Wars movies uh, a couple years back, but I tried not to pay attention. Because I probably will never be able to get over Zar Binks or whatever. It was kind of like you introduce a Nestle's quick... Strawberry bunny or something, in the middle of uh, something that you that you were doing a pretty good job of a crazy far out theme, and actually making it fairly easy to do what you call suspend your dis- disbelief, and then you throw in this boing 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 ricochet rabbit. <laughs> I I I don't know if there's anything in the whole history of the world that I've been so disappointed in, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I haven't been able to even think about Star Wars ever since then. But until then, one of the things I liked about Star Wars in the first three, which is Episodes 4, 5, and 6, we all know, was that uh, they had this trifold religion of mostly the fo- force is a Buddhist idea. So the underlining worldview of it all is uh, it's actually this weird mixture of Buddhism in that there's this all-pervading force with modern secular humanism and, and that there, there's this one world government and one world, you know, like they, when they depict the earth at all in those like Star Trek and they depict they, they the, the earth with the, the fulfilled dream of all humanists that the whole world is one secular humanistic government to the praise and glory of man and his technology and science and medicine and so forth. Yay, man. And uh, <laughs> we worship you and we adore you. And we are you. Uh, and so they have like uh, eschatology, the eschatology of humanism. The, 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 the sense of deity is the non-deity of, of nirvana or whatever. Um, and uh, uh, But then on the surface of it are all these Christian allegories. You know, discipleship and uh uh being born and you know uh chosen or born into de- you know a destiny and um you know if you strike me down I'll be- only become more powerful than you could ever imagine very very uh, Christ like statement and so forth so uh, I used to love like when my kids were real little like five through eight we used to watch the Star Wars movies and discuss the theology and worldview of them all and so forth and um and of course my boys read all the books before they were 10 because the boys love that stuff um so um of all these great world religions you know hinduism buddhism shintoism do you know what shintoism is Shintoism is a uniquely Japanese faith that says that, you know, the gods came down, had sex with Japanese women, and created the Japanese race. <laughs> uh, and uh, so the Japanese are the greatest, and uh, it was really the pervading idea that, that uh, led to the Japanese involvement in World War II. Religions have consequences. World War II, uh, if it hadn't been for Italy and Germany's devotion to secular humanism, in and, uh, and, and a twisted eschatological vision called the Third Reich, and um, Jap- Japan's eschatology of Shintoism, World War II, would have never happened. So believe me, like people are used to a religion that's like private, you keep it in your pocket, you don't tell anybody about it, uh, it doesn't actually have anything to do with real things, and you just do it behind closed doors, and and have mammy pamby prayer readings that don't really amount to a hill of beans, but that has nothing to do with uh, real biblical th- theology or, or religion or any other r- real religion uh you know wor- any 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 religion should be the paradigm through which all reality is interpreted and should affect nations and and governments and Economic systems and so forth. So, when you study the great re- world religions, uh, again, Zoroastrianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, animism, etc., one of the things you'll discover is biblical religion, both the Israelites and the Christians, are the only faith that is rooted in historical personages and events. Now, there are many Muslims who would claim that they are, but that's not correct at all. And so, uh, and of course, we have the only king and God who became a man, who was holy in and of himself, and defeated sin and death by his resurrection. No one else claims that. So for Christianity and Christianity alone, all religions have a view of history. I remember one of my first conversations with my dear friend, uh, Pastor Dan Brown, who pastors the Bethel Christian Assembly of God Church on Smithville. Uh, He came over to my house on a Saturday morning (laughs) and uh, quite early, and, uh, and he was wearing blue jeans because I used to tease him about uh, um, that he only wore suits all the time, like every day he wore a suit, even once we were cleaning the floor of the, of the gym, and he was doing it on his hands and knees in a nice, very nice suit. And uh, so I would tease him about that because that was part of their, the, their culture. And uh, so he, he came over to my house with a very brand new pair of je- blue jeans that you knew had never been washed. They were stiff with starch. And, uh, uh, and uh, he came over to ask me about the linear view of history uh, or a biblical view of history versus the view of history in other religions. And so um, every religion has a view of history. Where you've been what that means, and where we are, and what that means, and where we're going, and what that means. And when you get the view of history wrong, you have the whole thing wrong, which is a scary thing because today about 95% of Christians have the wrong view of history. Jesus said to his followers in, in, uh, at the at John's version of the Last Supper, John 13, 14, 15, and 16, um, he said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. Because a servant doesn't know what his master's doing. Um, if you, I, I love in 2 Timothy 3.10, where Paul is telling, this, he's describing Timothy's uh, practice of discipleship with Paul. And he says, uh, Timothy, from the beginning, you've known my teaching, uh, my, my conduct, my way of life, et cetera. But then he, um, ESV says, AIM, uh, New American Standard says, my purpose. You know, what he's saying is something I hope like you can start, starting with your spouse and with yourself, that you can say, what really motivates me? Now, a key to that is what the outcomes are. In other words, your behavior is motivated by what's really motivating you, what your aim and your purpose is in life. If you're having, um, say, trouble prioritizing scripture study, it's a much deeper problem than you need to make a list of and written goals and so forth. You've got to come to God to read do your whole thinking about what scripture is and why it's so important. That's why in our Search to Scripture series, the, the first uh, lesson is a four-pager called The Bible on the Importance of Bible Study, and it lists approximately 70 scriptures on why the scriptures say you should prioritize scripture. And I always try to encourage people to make that like a daily thing you're using until your level of appreciation for scripture reaches the point it should be. Very few of us, you can, you can, I can, you know, don't really have to argue the case. I have scientific evidence right here that I don't miss uh, many meals. You know, I I have a friend named Monty Zinn who used to own a lot of car dealerships in uh, Springfield, and and, uh, we go out to lunch about once a year and so forth, and uh, he's a very wealthy man and very powerful personality. He started as a car salesman and did so well, he ended up owning the dealerships and all that. And um, uh, he he used to own the dealerships that are now Jeff Weiler dealerships in Springfield. Um, And um, he'll always say whenever we go to lunch, he goes, I see you've been eating well. I don't think you've missed many weal- meals. <laughs> and I uh, said, you know, to which I say, you know, you're so discerning, you have a keen sense for the obvious. Uh, <laughs> so, um, where, what you do always comes out of what you think, what your attitudes and motivations are. And ultimately, what God's after is that we would uh, have His motivations. So, this phrase, um, holy is your name, is very important. Because apart from God, there is no holiness anywhere in the universe. And in the Bible, names mean uh, identity. I was so pleased when Morgan and Austin told me several months ago that they were going to name this beautiful little one, Christina Abigail. And of course, Christina is uh, pretty obvious where that comes from. And uh, all such forms like Christiana, happy birthday yesterday, um, uh, come they, they mean Christ. They mean Christ bearer, a witness of Christ, a a proclaimer of Christ, a person who, when you see them, you see Jesus. That's pretty high calling. I always give like the, whenever I see guys like named something like Elijah, I always go, kid, you have a pretty high calling to live up to. And then they look at me like, what do you, you know, you, you got a lot to live up to if your name's Samuel or whatever. Uh, you know, can you think, Samuel, not one word he ever spoke fell to the ground. I, I wonder if the majority of the words I've spoken have, have been erroneous or whatever. Hopefully not. So holy is your name is, is more than saying you're holy. It's saying the very essence of your being is holy. Now, There's an important theological concept that hopefully all of you who've taken our theology class, which we are going to rerun, hopefully soon, and hopefully with Andy Gearhart teaching it, but um, we've been talking about it. So uh, just waiting on some health issues of his to resolve, which I think they have now, but so... um, there's, a, there's an aspect of, uh, when you study the attributes of God, one of his attributes that is sometimes misunderstood is called simplicity. And that doesn't mean that he's uh, not very complicated. I'm sim- not very complicated. Uh, my wife just says, you know, you just want too many times. But uh, <laughs> really simple. But, uh, and you like lasagna. So um, simplicity is the idea that all of God's attributes are one and they can't be separated. Does everybody hear what I'm saying there? All of God's attributes are one attribute. And so we can separate them. It's a little bit like when we talk about that John Bradbury is a triune being—he's spirit, soul, and body. But I can't, like, say uh, I'm going to have John Bradbury's spirit and soul go to lunch while his body stays here. Now, sometimes our soul is out the window when we're supposed to be listening to the, you know, because Brother Greg's speaking, or like, not that again. And uh, <laughs> but actually, your soul's still right there in your head, uh, and and so forth. In the life is in the blood. Your, your spirit runs throughout your entire blood. So um, that's why it tends, you tend to be able to sense your spirit in here, Moeller, because the uh, great uh, high percentage of the blood that's flowing through you is in here. So if you hear, uh, if when you are in the intellectual, cerebral, cognitive realm, you tend to sense it more mostly up here by your brain. When you're in the spiritual realm, you tend to sense it more in your gut. And, and that's why the Bible actually uses the, the literal word for innermost being in, in Hebrew as kidneys uh, and bowels and so forth. That, that, because that's, your spirit's kind of woven throughout the inner fabric of who you are. But the point is this you can't separate someone's spirit, soul, and body although you must. <laughs> you, you need to understand what's happening in your spirit versus what's happening in your soul what, versus what's happening in your body. Although they are inextricably intertwined and the three are one, and in fact, God made you a trying being as a word picture to point you to the Trinity, um, even though that's the case, it's important that you understand which is which, and we can talk about them separately, but we can't actually separate them. And in fact, what death is, is when the silver cord is broken, Ecclesiastes, and your spirit and soul go to be with the Lord or to the other reward uh, uh, immediately, uh, the due rewards of your, of your behavior and so forth, motivations. When, when that gets separated, that's called death. And the resurrection is when those are brought back together again. So, likewise, you can't talk about God's love and God's wrath uh, and God's uh, eternal purposes and his omniscience and his omnipresence that's, that is the easy, you know, we talked about that last week when we were talking about transcendence and so forth. You can't talk about, you can conceptualize them as different descriptions of who God is, but they God is always all those at once. Okay. So if you uh, take read a good introductory book to the... Uh, to the attributes of God, like uh, Tozer's, uh Knowledge of the Holy that we use, or our A.W. Pink's, um, I think it's just called The Attributes of God, um, you kind of have to like read the whole book and then make every thought in it uh, present on the surface of your mind and active at, in, at the same time, <laughs> which we're not that good at. But... Uh, <laughs> going to shuffle it all together as one because God is all those all the time but what's interesting is I think for a number of reasons what we experience when we uh touch the Lord's sense his presence see him if you will the first thing we're amazed at always is his holiness and any time, again, holy, holy, holy is kind of a perfect completion of emphasis. It's like holy in a way that we infinitely holy. No limitations on the holiness. And holiness for, for creatures, especially human creatures, is actually growing in how much we're set apart to God. That's what holiness is. How much are the deeds of your body, the thoughts of your mind, the desires of your heart centered in him? That's growing in holiness. And only God is holy, and only God can initiate holiness, and only God can bring holiness to its completion because absorbed in him is its completion, but not in an Eastern religion sense of absorbed in him where you lose your identity and the, and the two become one. The goal of, of Buddhism, nirvana, is that you would become so one with the uh, cosmic nothingness that you would no longer have passions, desires, goals. So like Buddhism's goal is to, be, is to lose yourself. Christianity's goal is to become the self you were always intended to be. And you'll never be more you uh, in, in every way that you were gifted and called to be than when you increase in holiness. And in fact, what is keeping you from being you is lack of holiness. And the more a person becomes holy by the grace and power of God, the more they become themselves. A unique, you become one with God in character, spirit, purpose, but not in any such way that the identities are confused. In fact, they're more separate all the time. So, like in a good marriage, they become one in purpose, uh, in, in motivations, etc., uh, etc., cetera, et cetera, but the person becomes uniquely who they are more and more and more. So remember, holy is your name. First of all, a name is an identity. So the, the most noticeable outstanding characteristic of God is his holiness. Now, as the Isaiah 6 passage, uh, I guess I said we were going to read it, and we never did, hopefully you have by now. It's on the page. Uh, brings out, um, when he sees God, he, there's a trifold holy. That's so important. And then the next thing he says is the same thing Peter said when he saw the holiness of God in Luke chapter 5, when Jesus said, throw down your nets, and they'd been fishing all night and hadn't caught a single fish. And he says, Lord or master at your bidding. See, they already knew Jesus because they had been John the Baptist disciples, and he'd pointed out who Jesus was. This was Luke 5 is not their first encounter with Jesus. It's probably their 10th or 15th encounter with Jesus. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us that much detail. Well, it's one of your questions you can add to the list of questions to ask when you get to heaven. But uh, how many times had they been with Jesus or seen Jesus or heard from Jesus before he shows up on the, sea, the shores of the Sea of Galilee and says, you know, put down your nets, And then they get such a gathering of fish that they can't get them all in the boat and they have to call for other boats to help. You know, when we start getting the model right, uh, the way God does evangelism, instead of competing with other churches, we'll be calling other churches to help. And and they'll be calling us to help. I love, you know, we're already uh, at a place where... uh, you know, some of the guys in India um haven't made that transition yet to they, they feel qualified and, and have done enough reading of the books and studying to be qualified to bring someone along. So they're still at that beginning stage of evangelism where evangelism is I invite my friend to church and then I hope the professional pastors have Daniel Williams save them and <laughs> get them, you know. And uh what, we, what we're always trying to do is equip you to be able to make disciples. Because like in, in India, we're already at the place where John Gray, uh, Leah Gray, Deanna, Jane Huang, uh, Sindhu, and others are helping me do it because I can't keep up. So this week we had a nice discipleship uh, meeting with um, a friend of Golda's that's a couple years younger than her and that we had met while we were in India, and uh, Jane and, um, and Sindhu helped me with the call. Uh, and we're setting up things so that uh, Deanna's gonna take over, but she's gonna work mostly through Jane and, and Sindhu, because she's getting maxed out, which is what we wanna have. We wanna have you have so many discipleship con- uh, contacts that, that you have to get some helpers. And believe me, the Lord can do that and more if, and, and that's one of our motivations for why we should be studying. All right, I've kind of uh, mismanaged my time a little bit, although we've covered very many great things. Uh, Leviticus nineteen two: you shall be holy for I am holy. That particular verse is quoted in 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. Um. Don't be conformed to the former lust, which you had in ignorance. And he's talking specifically about our interconnections at work and in our neighborhoods and at the grocery store with the outside world. He's saying it's very important that we have inner motivations and conduct and attitudes of holiness because when when someone meets you like, let's say you talk to them in the ice cream aisle at Kroger's. I know that aisle pretty well. But uh, <laughs> uh, do you know that's may be the most important encounter with a person they've ever had or may ever will have? Believe me, we are way too humble in the wrong ways sometimes. You have Christ in you, the hope of Glory. And if they don't, that might be the most important, you might be the most important person they ever met and the most important thing they've ever done or are going to do because Christ is, is an all or nothing thing. So holiness is from God to God through God and holiness is the essence of who God is. And we could say some other things about holiness, but you got to start with that whole God-centered frame. But for instance, ho- holiness is no impure motivations. No, it's way more than sexual holiness. It's attitudes and motivations about money, about fame. You know, one of the things that's very obvious, I love sports, as you know. The whole desi- competition, which I love, is... Uh, Frankly, not that holy of a thing. It's you know, it's like I'm wanting to win, and um, that's why it needs to be kept in perspective. I believe in, I believe sports are good; they can be good, but they're not inherently good because nothing is holy apart from God. So you can only be a holy coach or a holy basketball player. If, you're, if your giftedness comes from God, your calling in sports comes from God, and your purpose is to give back to God. Right? There's no other way. So, holiness is, uh, is very unique. It's interesting. Uh, I, I will kind of end here. Um, we, you have to seek God for more holiness. When the Pentecostal outpouring started January 1st, 1901, the very first moment of this century, and God poured out his spirit on uh, all mankind, uh, starting with uh, the Topeka, Kansas thing in 1900, the Azusa Street Revival in 1906. It was interesting, the the early Pentecostals all emphasized increased holiness now when uh, when you have an inner desire to be more holy but you have a antinomian the- theology you will define holiness as not wearing women not wearing pants and not wearing makeup and not wearing jewelry and uh, if you notice by the way in, in all the antinomian legalistic views of holiness, women get a really bad deal and are, and are quite disrespected. Because that's part of man's sinful nature is for men to disrespect instead of honoring their women. So um, a desire for holiness, let me just kind of end with saying this. You have to have, if that's increasing in you, Remember in the Beatitudes, Jesus teaching on what it means to be a disciple or follower of Jesus, one of the Beatitudes are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. If your hunger for God, if your are thirst for righteousness, your hunger for his word, your thirst for his spirit, your desire to integrate into the purposes of the body of Christ, uh, to be part of God's army and family and plan and so forth. If all of that is growing, that's great, but it's not necessarily great if it's not biblically defined. So when you, know, when you, you get into an antinomian framework, you start emphasizing things about holiness that aren't holiness, that are just legalism and man-made rules. And it's important that we be a holy people Nothing is more important. But not in how the culture or the world defines holiness, how the scriptures, how God defines holiness. So let's, uh, let's uh, next week we'll look at um, the next phrase. Let's see, our Father and holy is your name. Thy kingdom come. Next week we will look at your kingdom come and what that means.